It can be really hard for us to relax at night. We're always thinking about covering crime. But the good news is our wonderful new sponsor, Via, has a terrific product that helps us unwind. Via Hemp has a wide range of terrific gummies of both the THC and THC-free varieties. They can help you with focus, recovery, sleep, creativity, or just plain enjoyment. These products legally ship to all 50 states. I really liked Zen in particular. This is a yummy blueberry option that lets you catch a chill sleep with help from CBN and CBD. It's really helped me turn off my brain and settle down for the night. I also got a shout out Flow State. It helped me feel energized throughout the day. Like not to brag, but I got a lot done. I'm talking about doing several interviews and editing a whole show from start to finish, not to mention jumping on some of the latest filings in the cases we cover. It really made me feel sharp and ready to tackle any challenge. I couldn't recommend this more. Via has so many great gummy options to choose from. Everything from guava berry low dose that allows you to microdose THC to the chill-inducing Delta 9 gummy dreams. Head to viahemp.com and use code MSHEET to receive 15% off and one free sample of their award-winning gummies. That's viahemp.com and use code MSHEET at checkout. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Enhance your every day with Via Hemp. Again, if you're 21 and over, you can get 15% off plus a free pack of award-winning gummies with our exclusive code, msheet at viahemp.com. That's V-I-I-A-H-E-M-P dot com. Content warning. This episode contains discussion of rape, homicide, and the murder of two young girls. If you follow our reporting, you've probably noticed that we've done a lot of coverage on Tony Klein. As a recap, Jerry Anthony, or Tony Klein, is the father of Kagan Anthony Klein, a young man facing child sexual abuse materials charges who's been publicly linked to the Anthony Schatz account. According to police, Anthony Schatz was a social media account operating with the intent of preying on young girls. Anthony Schatz was in contact with Liberty German just before her death, and detectives say that the 14-year-old was enthusiastic about meeting up with the false persona, who she likely believed was a wealthy and stylish boy much closer to her own age. In a transcript of a 2020 interview between police and Kagan Klein, Detectives revealed that two individuals were accessing devices associated with Anthony Schatz, Kegan Klein's other online personas, and child sexual abuse materials and related searches. And those two individuals were both likely residing in the house that Kegan Klein shared with his father in Peru, Indiana. To boil it all down for you, there's a very important reason behind our continued pursuit of this particular angle. We understand from our sources that Tony Klein continues to be a focus of the Delphi investigation. In the online community that sprung up around the Delphi murders, you're often asked who your POI or person of interest is. Namely, who's the suspect you think is responsible for murdering Abigail Williams and Liberty German? Well, our approach is a bit different. We don't think you should care about our opinions that much. We think it's much more important to report the facts about the person the police seem to be most interested in. In our last episode about the Delphi murders, we took you inside Tony Klein's workplace. In other previous episodes, 
we've reported the stories of a peer who became wary of Tony Klein's stalking behavior, of Klein's previous disturbing criminal acts, and the heartbreaking story of Klein's stepchildren, who say they suffered horrendous abuse at his hands. Today, we're going back to Kokomo, back into the Chrysler plant, past the turnstiles once more. We're taking you onto the lines themselves, where employees have worked to put together millions of transmissions for decades, where they chat and gossip and bond, where they sometimes, like on almost all jobs, get together to talk about the workplace creeps. We're going to discuss one disturbing story we heard from yet another one of Tony's co-workers, and then we'll get into other things we've learned about Tony Klein over the course of our coverage. Because even with all that we've uncovered and brought to light, we'd really like to know more about him. My name is Anya Kane. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. And this is The Murder Sheet, a weekly true crime podcast. Anya and I connected over the Burger Chef murders, a 1978 unsolved case involving the killings of four young restaurant employees. Now we're looking to track restaurant homicides. To help us understand the patterns of these crimes, we created a spreadsheet of nearly a thousand eatery-related killings, the murder sheet. We'll be drawing on that data throughout season one to give you a deep dive into undercovered crimes. We don't just rely on skimming the headlines. We dive into these cases to bring you in-depth coverage. We're the murder sheet, and this is the Delphi Murders, Who is Tony Klein, part four. First, let's talk to another Chrysler employee. We're keeping this man anonymous for obvious reasons. We'll call him Seth, which isn't his real name, of course. Kevin will read out his quotes. Seth had a job at the plant. We won't get into what that job was, but basically for a while, he saw Tony Klein on almost a nightly basis. He would pull his fork truck up there. Tony's job was being a fork truck driver there, and he would pull up there every single night, and he would just chit-chat with his work friend for, I mean, possibly close to an hour every single night. We've edited out Tony's work friend's name. We're not going to identify that work friend for now because we haven't been able to get his side of the story. The Delphi case attracts quite a lot of scrutiny. And we don't think it's fair play or responsible to throw a person's name out there without doing more due diligence. Suffice to say that Tony Klein would come around a lot. And frankly, Seth did not like that. Like I said, I saw the guy every single night. There's just something ominous about him. I did my best to never make eye contact with him. 
The guy creeped me out. I sure didn't want to have a conversation with him. I'm the type of person where I keep my circles tight and few. I don't associate with people who give me creepy feelings like that. So we asked Seth why exactly he found Tony Klein so creepy. You ever just look into somebody's eyes and just say, that person has no soul? That guy just, he's in it for himself. I don't know. He just looks like the type of person that no matter what it is, no matter how sick and twisted it is, he looks like the kind of guy who is going to do it, regardless of how it affected anyone. Like I said, I didn't pay much mind to him because the guy really gave me the shivers and the creeps. And I'm not someone who's typically intimidated by people. But even though he'd always gotten a bad vibe from the guy, Seth felt shocked when he overheard a certain conversation one night. One night I happened to be walking by with another guy on my line. And we heard him say, we should take those two into the woods and rape them. And I'm like, what the hell? When I happened to look up about that time, I see these two gals, pretty gals, walking our way. And I'm like, okay, that's kind of creepy for this guy to be saying this about these women. So our source, Seth, says that Tony Klein was talking with a work friend at the plant one night. When two female co-workers walked by, Tony Klein apparently told the work friend, let's take these two in the woods and rape them. That was a statement overheard by two people. Seth and another co-worker. We also confirmed with a third employee that Seth mentioned this incident earlier. Now, we'll note that it's practically a cliche that factory and plant settings can have a boys' club atmosphere. Offensive statements made in jest can make for a toxic workplace. Go on court records platforms like Pacer, and you'll find plenty of workplace harassment lawsuits that attest to this trend. For his part... Seth said that he's heard male co-workers make offensive and sexual comments before. But not to that degree. I've never heard another man inside that plant. Like I said, I've met some creepy people in there. But I've never heard any man say anything like that. That's what really made it stand out to me. If you want to be incredibly generous and assume Tony Klein's comment was a joke... It's hard to see where the humor is in that. In our frank view, Tony Klein bluntly talking about raping women seems quite far from a typical off-color joke. That was Seth's feeling, too, at the time, and especially these days. Tony was apparently the subject of some workplace discussions, even before his connection to the Delphi case became public. We would always talk about him back in the day, like... That guy, he gives us the creeps. There's something weird about him. There's something not right about him. Whenever I speak to someone who knows him, that's kind of the vibe that's given. We've heard that too. If you'll recall in our previous Delphi Murders episode, we talked to a different Chrysler employee we called Haley. She knew Tony Klein to see him, although they did not speak much. In her experience... Plenty of her co-workers admired Tony Klein, but there were also a good number of those who had had negative experiences where he gave them the creeps. Seth had more to say. We had to cut some of it from our coverage because some of what he said would identify him. Other aspects of his story were have to spend more time running down. That's the nature of working on this case. 
One frustrating aspect of it is that in order to practice journalism responsibly, you can't necessarily publish every detail you get right away. And that's something we run into in this case. We'll come back to Seth later. But let's take a moment to talk more about the man himself, Tony Klein. To use a familiar but apt cliché, This man is the large, middle-aged spider in the center of the web that is the Delphi case. So many people have a Tony Klein story. That's sort of the point of this whole episode. We have spent a lot of time talking to people about Tony Klein. Dozens of people. Those who knew him growing up, those who know him through work, and those who know him socially or through the community. Frankly, it feels pretty weird to know so much about a person that we've never talked to ourselves. That's not for lack of trying, though. Since his name first started popping up in our reporting, we've reached out to him numerous times for comment. We've called. We've messaged. We even got a hold of his mother, who declined to comment and promptly hung up the phone. That is to say... We've tried to give him a chance to comment on the things we've uncovered, to defend himself in writing or in an interview, and we'd still welcome a statement from him. But here's the thing. Most people who know Tony Klein are not so tight-lipped. They're largely aware of the allegations against his son, Kagan Klein, and of the coverage that indicates that Tony Klein himself is a focus of the Delphi investigation. They're horrified. They're grappling with their own histories with Tony Klein, especially those dark, disturbing incidents that they may have overlooked or written off. And they're coming forward with what they know. We can't necessarily run all of these interviews for a number of reasons. Some people do not want to talk publicly about their experiences, and we understand that. We're not in the business of pushing people to relive their trauma for the sake of publishing true crime content. We're looking for answers, but not at that cost. But we've talked to enough people where we're now comfortable teasing out certain strands of this wider story. And we feel that it paints a pretty clear picture of Tony Klein. So let's talk about that. Jumping back to the very beginning... Tony Klein was born in 1968. That makes him 54 years old. One of the earliest photos we've seen of Tony Klein is a snap from his senior year of high school, back in the 80s. In this photo that ran in a yearbook, he's leaning over a lunch table, mouth agape, eyes squinting. He's wearing a blue plaid shirt. One of his teeth glints in the flash from the camera and the photo's saturation levels give his skin a deep red tint. He appears to be yelling at a companion, who's digging into some slop on a lunch tray. Milk cartons, notebooks, utensils, napkins, and food sit between them. The yearbook caption reveals that Tony Klein and his companion are in the midst of a pig-out. Like today, he was a heavy guy back then, but with a lot more hair that appears to be styled into a mullet. According to most of our sources, when Tony was growing up, his family was well-liked and respected. People seemed to really like his parents, Linda and Jerry. Tony's father and Kegan's grandfather 
died at 6.30 a.m. on Friday, February 18, 2022. And Jerry Leroy Klein's obituary reveals a few key details about the family. They had firm roots in Peru, Indiana, the seat of Miami County. As a point of reference, that's 40 minutes away from Delphi, Indiana, on the Hoosier Heartland Highway. Anyways, the obit says that Jerry Leroy Klein was born in Peru in 1945. He was baptized at the Mexico Baptist Church. Presumably, that was in nearby Mexico, Indiana. And he also attended Olive Branch Church of God, which seems to be about a 20-minute drive from Peru. Like his son, Jerry Leroy Klein would attend Peru High School, graduating in 1964. A year later, on June 5th, Jerry wed Linda Lee Trexler, Tony's mom, in Logansport, Indiana. Their first child was a girl, Tony's older sister. Like his son, Jerry Leroy Klein would go on to work for Chrysler. Some acquaintances have speculated to us that Tony's dad helped his son land a job at the plant as a means of helping Tony settle down. For her part, Linda L. Klein graduated from the Kokomo School of Practical Nursing in 1992, according to the Logansport Pharaohs Tribune. She had to finish a one-year program featuring classroom and clinical work with 35 other students, and the accomplishment left her eligible for further licensing with the Indiana State Board of Nursing. All of this also seems to be borne out by Linda Klein's social media presence. Tony Klein grew up in Peru, Indiana, in this family of four. In some ways, we get little glimpses into what should have been an idyllic Hoosier life. A dad with a good union job. A mom who went back to school to become a nurse. A sister who was into twirling in sports. And, in 1987, the Kokomo Tribune reported that Jerry Klein of the High Rollers team bowled a 640 in a series of three games. We don't know much about bowling, but that seems to be a good score. In 1990, the Tribune had him landing a three-pound, five-ounce largemouth bass on crankbait from Kokomo Reservoir. Again, we don't know much about fishing, but we assume that's noteworthy. This all sounds very nice and low-key. This was not a family that made many negative appearances in the local news, at least from what we could tell from newspapers.com. We know for a fact that the Kleins faced at least one near tragedy. In July of 1974, the UPI reported that Tony's older sister was caught up in what would have been a major disaster for a small city like Peru. Around 150 people, mostly kids in costumes, had been gathered near the South Peru School for a Lions Club summertime parade. An unoccupied compact car rolled down a nearby hill before slamming into the crowd at 20 to 30 miles an hour. Eleven kids were injured, some seriously. Tony's eight-year-old sister was treated and then released from the hospital. Tony himself would have been about six at that time. We've wondered if he was in that crowd of screaming children, too. Otherwise, we haven't heard much by way of possible early traumatic incidents associated with Tony Klein. We do know that he seemed to have a lot in common with his father. According to the obit, Jerry Klein Sr., quote, enjoyed old cars and motorcycles and loved going to car shows, traveling, and spending winters in Panama City Beach, Florida. 
That sounds very much like Tony Klein, whose Facebook profile documents his enthusiasm for cars, bikes, and traveling. Heck, to paraphrase Tony's former stepson, the man always tried to come across like a cool motorcycle guy, at least on the surface. We've heard from several people that Tony Klein's parents doted on him and seemed to believe he could do no wrong. But a lot of people from Peru did not seem to share that opinion. Unlike the rest of his family, Tony Klein didn't seem to be widely liked. We've heard from a number of people who, as kids, were explicitly forbidden from associating with him. He seemed to have been largely considered trouble, at least in some circles. And not trouble in an innocent hitting a baseball through a neighbor's window kind of way. He was trouble more like in the peeping through a neighbor's window and masturbating kind of way. Basically, he was the town pervert. This was widely known from his early years. And his behavior seems to have been largely tolerated by the community, from what we understand. This is a guy who kept on doing disgusting, perverted, and violent things again and again, harming multiple individuals on his erratic path through life. And he kept getting away with it. All his life. People made excuses. People kept quiet. People blamed themselves for his behavior. Regarding his earlier years, as a society, we have a few protections in place for teenagers who mess up. Police records for underage individuals are typically sealed. So we don't think that we'll be able to dig up any documentation on that front. But this voyeurism is one facet of Tony Klein's life that we've heard from dozens of sources. It was not some dirty little secret. It was an established point of discussion, to the point of being bizarre. Growing up, neither Anya nor I was aware of any peer who was widely considered our town's pervert. But this preoccupation with observing women without their consent plays into Tony Klein's later legal trouble. As we discussed in previous episodes, he was busted for stalking a child, the daughter of a previous romantic connection. He also landed in hot water for many obscene phone calls to women. He would ring them up and pretend to masturbate. As we said in our previous coverage, that's a non-contact sexual offense, as is voyeurism. All of this goes toward the beginning of a portrait of a sexual offender. A weight loss journey can feel like a lonely struggle, but it doesn't have to be. For so many of us, lifestyle changes like deciding to lose weight, adopting a nutritious diet, and taking up fun exercises are all about putting our own health and wellness first. But it can be really hard to know where to begin or how to keep the weight off once we've seen some progress. Quick fixes like soup diets and juice cleanses are unsustainable. There's a much better way to embark on this journey that over 200,000 people have already chosen. We're talking about the Row Body Program. Here's how it works. Row gives you access to one of the most popular weight loss shots on the market. Their Row Body Program then sets up a comprehensive weight loss program tailored to your specific lifestyle, health status, and goals. In addition to the weekly shot, you get one-on-one coaching with a registered nurse. That can help you adopt and stick with lifestyle changes like exercise routines and nutritious diets. 
It's a comprehensive program that sees participants lose 15 to 20% of their weight in a year on average. But the real benefit is that you keep that weight off. This is weight loss at its most sustainable. With Roe, the average weight loss is 15 to 20% of your weight in one year in conjunction with healthy lifestyle changes. EMI and other eligibility criteria apply. Go to roco slash msheet. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. Go to roco slash msheet. That's R-O dot C-O slash msheet. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. So what else do we know about Tony Klein from talking with those who know him? Well, for one thing, he's an angry guy. You ever talk to a guy about something fun, innocuous, what have you, and start to realize that, oh wow, he could snap at any time? There's just an edge in their voice, a twitch in their smile. Well, that's how Tony comes off to many people. People talk about his anger, his darkness being palpable. From talking with his former stepchildren, we know that this anger could strike suddenly as a lightning bolt. Things could be fine and then become incredibly violent in the blink of an eye. Talking with others, people who were not subject to his abuse, who were not members of his household, we found that this was not a surprise. He seemed to walk around with a chip on his shoulder, and he was pissed off about that, even as he often opted to take on the guise of a happy, jokey, funny guy. What else can you say about Tony Klein? Well... As far as appearances go, he's a heavier guy, thick around the middle. In contrast to that, others have described that he has a wheedling, higher-pitched voice, a voice that you would not expect to come out of his body. According to social media, he apparently favors big black sunglasses and baggy clothing. He's got brown eyes, light eyebrows, and a short sprout of dark, close-cropped hair atop a large head. His features sometimes make it look like he's grimacing in a lot of photos. One person told us they felt he had smallish, delicate hands. Certainly far off from the glamorous image that his son Kegan Klein crafted as Anthony Schatz. On the inside, well, as we've established, Tony Klein is not well-liked. 
True, he has a few friends whose sources say are possibly in denial about some of what's been said about him. But generally, we've talked to many people who have known this man for years. And what we hear from them is just not good. At the risk of sounding naive, we imagine that if we picked five murder sheet listeners at random and surveyed many of their lifelong acquaintances and friends, we might hear a few negative things, but on the whole, it'd be far more positive than what we've heard about Tony Klein. What people tell us about him is negative, and it is consistently bad about several key areas. Perversions, violence, anger, fake personas. If he wasn't being looked at for the crimes he's being looked at for, we'd almost feel bad for him. Still, Tony Klein seems determined to not let any of this negativity affect him. We've heard from plenty of people that he's still puttering around Peru like everything's fine. He goes and grabs food, he jokes with acquaintances, and he even rides around on his bike. He wants everyone to know that he's still cool guy Tony. Look a little closer, though, and you might start to see through the facade. Objectively, the man's life has taken a serious downturn. He has likely undergone a major medical procedure for his foot that required at least a partial amputation. One of the frequently cited reasons for this is diabetes, and that's what sources tell us that Tony Klein has. Losing even part of a foot is a pretty tremendous and traumatic medical issue to deal with, causing physical pain and the loss of some mobility. In part due to that procedure, and possibly in part due to growing scrutiny, Tony has not been back at work for some time. A number of people from Chrysler who spoke to us said that they don't recall seeing him at work after the pandemic began. That's a very long time to be out of work. Now, he's got years of seniority and his union membership, so that means job security. So it's not surprising that he's still employed at Chrysler, but it has got to be isolating to be away from your job that long, especially for a guy who seems to thrive on social interactions like Tony. He's not deriving value from the feeling of helping to put together transmissions anymore. He's not driving around on his forklift like he's done for decades chatting with friends on different lines. That seems like a big deal, even if he's still technically getting paid. Tony Klein seems to lead a lonely life. His son, Kagan Klein, is in jail awaiting trial. We've checked out Tony Klein's house in Peru, Indiana a few times. Nobody ever seems to be at home. Sometimes his vehicle moves from spot to spot. But you never see any activity at the doors, at the windows, any signs of life. We've heard that he may be hunkered down with relatives somewhere, driven away from the home he's lived in for years, the home where Anthony Schatz may have been born. Tony Klein is an injured man. He's an isolated man. He's smiling and carrying on, but life can't feel the same as it did a few years ago. We imagine that's got to weigh on a person. Let's finish up by throwing it back to Seth. For what it's worth, Seth is undecided on whether or not the voice that Libby recorded on her phone belongs to Tony. But he thinks that the grainy video image on the bridge looks very much like Tony Klein. He said the gait reminds him of Tony's limp, 
which Tony now seemingly has thanks to his diabetes. Now, as a caveat, our prior Chrysler source, Haley, said that she doesn't recall Tony limping back in 2017. But we're including both diverging perspectives for the sake of hearing out both sides. A lot of people who know Tony see him in the image of Bridge Guy. Fewer think the voice sounds like a good match, but most note that the photo is hard to make out and the voice sounds garbled and tinny. We asked Seth if he thought Tony would be back to work soon. As we established in our previous Delphi Murders episode, that work is a very important part of Tony's identity. I've said in conversation many a times, with the reputation that he's earned while he's been out, I could see him not coming back. Because I, I would consider myself one of the more tame people there. And I know I would have a hard time not making a comment or something of that sort. I haven't followed up on what's going on in the news lately. I apologize. I was listening to your guy's stuff quite often. I'm not even sure if he's still being investigated or anything of that sort. But just me sitting on the comments alone that I heard him make that night, knowing what his son is being investigated for, I firmly believe he's tied in with this. I feel he's a part of it in some fashion. I'm very protective of my daughter, so I try to view everyone else's daughter as my daughter as well. So I want to protect everybody. If he's not tied in with these poor girls, I hope they find something else he is tied into. Because there is no doubt in my mind that he is guilty of something disgusting. We imagine that many folks at the plant, and in Peru, and Kokomo, and Delphi, feel the same way. Thanks to Seth for talking with us. Please, if you have a piece of information on Tony Klein, consider tipping off the police. You can email Abby and Libby Tip at C-A-C-O-S-H-R-F dot com, or you can call the tip line at 765-822-3535. They can keep you confidential. Don't sit on something that could help resolve the Delphi case. And of course, you can also send tips to murdersheet at gmail.com. We really want to hear from people who knew Kegan and Tony Klein. We protect our sources, but go to the police first. To our surprise, we've gotten a number of requests from people saying they would like a way to help financially support our efforts with the show. So if you are interested, we are relaunching a Patreon page which you can find at www.patreon.com slash murdersheet. Join us there for two live video question and answer sessions each month. You can ask us anything, suggest new cases for us to look at, or even offer ideas for new leads for us to follow. If Patreon is not your thing, you can buy us a coffee at www.buymeacoffee.com slash murdersheet. Thanks for the interest. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Murder Sheet. As always, thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenley, who composed the music for The Murder Sheet, and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com. To keep up with the latest on The Murder Sheet, please make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Murder Sheet, and on Facebook at MSheet Podcast, or by searching Murder Sheet. If you enjoy listening to The Murder Sheet, 
please leave us a five-star review to help us gain more exposure. And send tips, suggestions, and feedback to murdersheet at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening.